Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Tell me, what does it mean to be human in this particular technological moment? It can seem like conventional measures of what's true, permanent, and, well, human are up for grabs in the face of rapidly advancing tech. And if there's no special spark that truly separates us from other animals or our technological creations, does it matter? That's what we'll try to answer in our 10-part series, Being Human Now. In the second episode, death. I grew up around death and dying. My father was a funeral director for 35 years in different states uh, in America. And so I, I grew up around death and dead bodies in a way that is is not the norm, but to me was entirely normal. And that certainly has contributed to the work I've gone on to do uh, in death studies and as a scholar of death and dying. I'm Dr. John Troyer. I'm the Death Studies Scholar at Large at the Center for Death and Society at the University of Bath. For a long time, the definition of death was one that was based around the heart. And that made sense because when the heart stopped, then eventually you would die from lack of oxygen. There was just no way around that. But once it became possible to sort of keep it going in a different way, then suddenly there's this whole understanding that, well, maybe this is not how we think about death. Then actually what we're talking about is a definition more around brain activity. And how, how do we think about neurological activity as being the definition of how we want to think about an integrated definition of death and what could a common definition be? Though it seems like it would be straightforward, death and what death means is always being re-examined legally, culturally, spiritually, medically, and philosophically. In his book, Technologies of the Human Corpse, John traces the history of innovation and technological change around death and dying. Everything from burying the dead in cemeteries to the 19th century practice of photographing the dead and the invention of embalming techniques. Those technological changes enable humans to shift an understanding of death where suddenly the dead body looks uh, surprisingly alive. To the influence of the railroad and its connection to embalming. Railway travel is also an important technological innovation, although not one we think about in terms of death and dying, which I totally get. But in order to send a dead body on a train car somewhere further away, you had to be able to preserve it. And so embalming becomes an important part of the early rail transport system. Yeah. So what did these kinds of technologies like embalming and photography and rail transit allow us to do with corpses that weren't possible before? What we could do suddenly in a way that hadn't existed before was exponentially increase the amount of time 
that you could spend around a dead body without it beginning to fully decompose. Decomposition will still happen, but suddenly there was a lot more time involved around how much time you had to get to the funeral of the city of the deceased, how much time you had to send the deceased someplace else. But then also you could move the dead body across bigger and more vast expanses of space without there being too many problems. And those, those were significant innovations. So you suddenly had a dead body that didn't have to be buried right away, didn't have to have a funeral right away. And that, that enabled a whole then shift in understanding what is possible with a dead body when it comes to something like a funeral. And so as these kinds of technologies emerged, how, how did the way that we talk about death and how we define it start to change? The one key point is that none of this None of this is technologically determined, meaning the technologies aren't really, they're not doing anything per se. I mean, these are all things we are doing as humans using these tools to do it. And so it's important to keep in mind is that what has given us is a new language to talk about how someone has died or what is death. And so in this idea of memorializing someone online, you know, that is, that's an older idea about like, what is a memorial for the dead? And so that's changed, I think, how we talk about someone's existence around us whatever it might be. It's not, maybe not a radical shift, but I think it has changed how we think about what is the presence of the dead, particularly through the ability to see, you know, photographs, for example, in a way that just was not possible that long ago. Mm -hmm. So we talked a bit about um, the evolution of memorialization, but beyond that, what are some of the developments in death and dying technology that have uh, followed since that 19th century period, like from the 20th century onwards? One of the big innovations would be, for example, the development of uh, reliable cadaveric organ donation, and I think that's been a that's been a major kind of shift. That's that's less about preservation per se, but it is another way of thinking about what is possible with a dead body. But also, too, you know, things have shifted technologically around the ideas of final disposition of human remains, and so the disposal technology, to use a shorthand term, that has you know that's evolved into other areas other than cremation, which is a very old practice, as well as um, burial, which is even older in some ways, but, you know, both very old. But then there are different kinds of methods, you know, uh, alkaline hydrolysis, water-based systems that are looking at tissue digestion would be the the engineering term that were developed for lots of reasons, but can, of course, be used with a human body. There's new interest in a repackaging of aerobic decomposition in terms of sometimes it's referred to as human composting or, you know, breaking down the body that way. So there's there's been lots of shifts in how we think about how we can what we can do with dead bodies and how to dispose of them with dignity and respect. So in the 70s you note that new technologies of death and dying kind of took root among them life support. What impact did these technologies have at the time and on the future of life extending technologies? So in the 1970s there's some key shifts that go on and I think a broadly defined life support machinery system. And when I, when we talk about life support machinery, that can be lots of different kinds of machines. But so, for example, our, you know, external nutrition, but also ventilation and breathing, a whole long list of what we think about. But there's a key shift that takes place once we begin to develop these machines to help someone either recover or stay alive, whatever might happen. And that is one, you know, we as a, again, as a species are confronted with an idea that we are looking at a new kind of definition of death, one that has been changed by our ability to sort of alter or change a biological process that had seemed to be fairly well established. But that too, 
there's a bioethical question that's always lurking then or not lurking around. And it's a very important one, which is we understand we can turn the machines on. The question then becomes, and then when do we turn them off? And so as a result of the fact that you can turn on whatever this machine is, that then sets in motion a whole long list of other conversations around. So what do you want in terms of your end of life care or what might your wishes be? So things like living wills are determined. Do not resuscitate orders become much more common. A whole long list of documents that in the 1970s, you know, are seen in some ways as being politically kind of radical because suddenly you're saying, no, I'm going to try, I want to assert a kind of control over how this, this works. Hospices begin to emerge more widely in the 1970s. They certainly have started by that point in the mid sixties in England, but they begin this more widely. And, you know, and there's a whole just shift in the conversation around, you know, what is death? What is dying? Who lives? Who dies? How much control do I have over that? And that I think is a conversation we're still having today. Young and today on Spark, we're talking about death and dying in the digital age as part of our occasional series, Being Human Now. Right now, my guest is John Troyer, death scholar at large at the University of Bath and the author of Technologies of the Human Corpse. John has been taking us on a winding journey of technologies around death and dying, including how our understanding, language, and feelings about end of life have evolved. One thing I'm kind of keeping an eye on is I'm curious how the COVID experience, particularly of the, the lockdowns from a couple of years ago, how that will more permanently change funeral practices in ways we don't necessarily realize that was something that was due to COVID. One example I would use of that is something I have noticed already, which is, you know, prior to COVID, it was possible for funerals to be live streamed. But because of the restrictions placed on us during COVID, that idea of watching the funeral online or watching it a video streaming service became much more necessary because that was the only way people could participate. Yeah. And what I found, and this is what I'm really struck by, is that that practice has continued, mm-hmm. even though we're no longer under those restrictions, has continued. And in fact, it's something that a lot of funeral homes are offering, not all, but many are offering, and many people are taking up. And so that to me is one of those things where I'm always intrigued by how these things that are always around suddenly become necessary because they're there and they can be used in a new way. And then how do they become more well entrenched into sort of what happens to the future funerals? So they will continue, but they'll change. And and just considering the way that how we view dead bodies has changed, what are their other possible uses for our remains beyond simply burying them or or putting them in an urn? There is uh, no shortage of opportunities or ways to work with a deceased person's remains that may be quite meaningful for someone, whether, you know, it's having them transformed into different kinds of industrial grade diamonds, or if there's a gentleman who is pressing them into vinyl records, if you listen to music for a time, a whole lot of things you could do. And I think that th- that for some people that com- becomes quite meaningful. And I, I get that. And I think that, you know, it's easy to look back or to sort of almost look sideways and be like, oh, that doesn't seem very dignified. But to the people who are doing it, oftentimes it actually means quite a lot. And that I think is, it comes down to that individualized experience of grief and bereavement and funeralization. And that to me is, I think, always very important to keep in mind. Yeah. I mean, there are some, 
I don't want to say extreme, but more notable examples of this kind of thing. For example, you know, using the recycled energy from a crematorium to heat a swimming pool or uh, human composting. What what do you make of these kinds of practices? Well, yeah. So the energy recycling um, that I mean, to me, it all it's actually all part of a trend that I, I think importantly starts back with the idea of organ donation, which is this idea that you can recycle, which is not the word we like to use. And I get that because that seems rather crass, but there's this idea that there is a way to repurpose and reuse biomaterials in a way that was prior to it unconventional. But I mean, what you can guarantee is that there will always be new innovations to it and that some people will pick it up. Some people will use it. Some won't. Uh, some people adapt to it. But that that is the history of how we think about disposal of the dead. John, thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you. Absolutely. Anytime. John Troyer is a death scholar at large at the University of Bath and the author of Technologies of the Human Corpse. You're listening to Spark from your friends at CBC Radio. Have you ever wondered why you see what you see when you're online? I'm Jamie Bartlett, and in The Gatekeepers from BBC Radio 4, I'm telling the story of how social media accidentally conquered the world. Mark's explained to me he's going for a billion users. I'm going, for what? I'm sorry, what is it you're going to do? They can give us a voice or silence us, whoever we are. At Real Donald Trump, it says, account suspended, everything... To understand how we got here and where it's taking us. Listen to The Gatekeepers, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and this time on Spark, the second episode in our occasional series, Being Human Now. That's where we look at facets of human existence that we once took to be distinctly ours and how they're changing in today's technological moment. This time, death. What death really reveals is how there are all of these both human and non-human infrastructures that are undergirding all of our digital possessions over time. This is Tamara Nice. I am currently serving as the project director for Data and Society's Algorithmic Methods Lab. In her work as a technology scholar, Tamara takes an ethnographic look at what it takes to maintain our online afterlives. It started out as a master's thesis, but it was really sort of, you know, initiated through my own experiences as a college student watching the way that memorialization started to unfold on Facebook, this brand new social media site. And with the death of a fellow college student on my campus, it very quickly turned into a space for people to gather, for people to try to talk to the dead. And I was really intrigued by that juxtaposition from this sort of carefree site for college kids to a sacred space for memorialization. In 2023, Tamara released her first book, Death Glitch, How Techno-Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond. 
you know, most of the time when we think about a glitch, we think about some kind of error or technological failure. But for me, I see death as a really kind of productive glitch insofar as it really makes visible the kinds of collaborative labor that go into all digital production. Platforms generally were not designed to accommodate death. And because of that, every time a user dies on a social network, there are a number of different processes that grieving people have to go through in order to get accounts memorialized or deactivated or deleted. And often what also happens is that there's a lot of negotiation over who should actually have control over the digital accounts or digital belongings of a dead person. I understand that after the Virginia Tech massacre in 2007, social media platforms, particularly Facebook, revisited how they deal with profiles of deceased users. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, you know, 2007, it was when I was at the University of Chicago, I was a master's student and I was writing my thesis largely on surveillance and Facebook. But the project really changed as I watched the Virginia Tech shootings unfold and the ways that Facebook memorialization became a topic in the news media and among people I knew for the very first time. And so before the Virginia Tech shootings, when Facebook was really predominantly used by elite college students and was slowly beginning to kind of trickle out into the general population, demographically speaking, there were no really like set plans for what to do with the profiles of the dead. And at that point, if a family member contacted Facebook and presented a death certificate and obituary, they might deactivate the profile of a dead person Mm. um, after a 30-day period. But most of the time, nobody said anything, and the profiles of the dead just sort of continued on as before. But because of Virginia Tech and the massive sort of trauma that it caused and the amount of news attention on the victims of the dead... Facebook quickly decided, okay, we're going to deactivate after 30 days all of the profiles of the victims. And I think they were quite taken aback by the outpouring in the grassroots organizing on the part of family members and friends of the victims who really campaigned for Facebook to change their memorialization policy. And rather than deactivating profiles after 30 days, allowing them to be maintained as shrines to the dead in the long term. So that was 16 years ago. And as you note in your work, digital platforms policies have gone through several revisions since then. Could you talk about where many of them are now and and how they got to that point? You know, Facebook is a really good case study just because it's such a huge platform. It's been around for such a long time. And they actually have put a lot of thought into the memorialization policy over time. And they really have tried to accommodate changing needs around user death. Although when you're trying to do that at the scale of something like Facebook, it can become quite difficult. But what they've attempted to do in more recent years is make it so users actually have the ability to appoint somebody as a guardian, essentially, for their account after they die. And that's true on a number of other social media platforms as well. 
where you as the user take charge of your own digital afterlife and uh, figure out who you would want to bequeath your data to or who you would want to kind of be in charge of deactivating or deleting your account if that is your choice. Yeah, I must say I do occasionally visit the memorial Facebook page of uh, a very good friend of mine who died nine years ago. And there's something about that that is kind of a unique experience compared to, for example, even just looking at photographs of him. Do you see any value in these kinds of online memorials? Well, absolutely. So a number of people that I interviewed for the book would talk about their very long-term relationships with the profiles of dead loved ones. And particularly one person I interviewed who was the partner of somebody who died in the Virginia Tech shootings, they discussed the way that they always come back to their girlfriend's profile and continue to mourn her through Facebook. Mm. And it's become this sort of calm, this rock, this constant in a person's life. And a number of other people I talked to also uh, reflected on the very kind of sacred role that different digital remains came to play in their life, especially as they move through grief. And grief, as we know, is something that isn't just a short-term thing. It's Mm -hmm. something that ebbs and flows and can surprise us. And so being able to revisit these digital places can be extremely meaningful and important for individuals as they move through life. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that you talk about is the amount of labor that goes into preserving a loved one's online legacy after they've gone. And I know that you spoke to people who've done this kind of work along with the kind of more traditional physical caregiving. Could you paint me a bit of a picture of the realities of digital caregiving and how it compares to that sort of physical form of caregiving? Yeah, so I I think that came out especially in my chapter about illness blogs as these things that individuals who maybe are faced with a terminal diagnosis use in order to document their own illness and to usually find a network of readers that may include their family and it may include other people with the shared experience of terminality. And I spoke to people who were married to people who were blogging about their own illnesses and kind of helping them navigate the experience of having cancer. So doing things like changing colostomy bags or providing childcare or, you know, cooking meals and how that also would sometimes include digital forms of caregiving as well. One of the people whose work I refer to in that chapter when she was no longer able to fully uh, type in the way that, you know, she would normally type as an academic. She had a trusted friend and colleague edit her work on her behalf uh, so that it would be sort of maintained in her voice after she died and the, the work was published. And so that, that kind of editorial labor often is a form of care work that coincides with other physical caregiving. I'm Nora Young. Right now, we're talking about the Internet of Death with Tamara Nice, author of Death Glitch. When it comes to digital technology, obsolescence is kind of as inevitable as death is to living beings. The idea of something like a smart graveyard might seem alluring, but what happens years from now when the QR code on a tombstone can no longer be read by the technology of the day? 
Yeah, yeah. It's funny that you raised that. So I actually, I wrote about QR codes on uh, gravestones as being maybe something that wouldn't work out in the long run back in 2014. And clearly we've seen with uh, the pandemic and people using QR codes to order from menus. Uh, but I think, you know, the problem still remains. So even if, you know, your phone is able to read the QR code, the fact that the hyperlink that it is supposed to connect to is very unlikely to survive for that long. And so thinking about just the ephemerality of the web is enough to render something like a smart graveyard basically impossible. Yeah. I mean, our digital lives, and this is something that you've written about, are not just about us as individuals, but about us and all of the interactions we have with those around us. Yeah. And I I think that is something that is quite remarkable about something like a Facebook profile that has been memorialized, is that it really isn't just about the individual and their photographs or personality is encapsulated by this profile, but it really is about their relationship with an entire network. And, you know, thinking about that sort of relational connection, you know, if you start kind of deleting individuals' profiles, you end up, you know, losing the network connections that make the data actually legible. So if you start sort of deactivating a number of accounts, you lose that entire thread, you lose the conversation, you lose the interaction. And that that is the thing that is also very unique about the possibility of a digital heirloom, but it is also the danger in that mm. it is very tricky to actually maintain an, an entire network over time. Right. I know that a bunch of uh, digital estate planning startups started cropping up 15, 20 years ago. You spoke to some of the creators of some of these services and you also tried them out. What did the companies in this space do and what was your experience with them? Yeah, so they really started popping up in the years immediately following Virginia Tech. And I think there was a general recognition that the problem of digital inheritance was going to be quite huge. And so there were a number of different companies. Some of them, you know, were kind of cheeky. They would have like cartoon ghosts or a grim reaper. And they would promise to do things like tweet your, you know, final tweet uh, after you die or update your status on Facebook and allow you to communicate sort of from beyond the grave for a moment. Um, there were others that also allowed you to write emails to people that could be released even years after your death. And so there is a sense that you could reveal secrets to people in the long term or continue to haunt people <laughs> on their birthday, uh, you know, 10 years after your death or something. And then, you know, the, but there were other websites that were much more geared towards thinking about intergenerational inheritance and, you know, mm. kind of the role of passing on wealth as being tied to the, the idea of the digital asset. But what I realized very quickly is that most of the companies, even the ones that seem to have a pretty good hook or that seemed, you know, to get a lot of attention from Y Combinator and other VC companies, uh, they did not last more than a couple of years. And so it was not a great model for thinking about managing digital assets in the long term. Nora Young. My guest right now on Spark is Tamara Nice. She's the author of the book Death Glitch, How Techno-Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond. 
And that's what we're talking about today on Spark. There's this growing trend where the dead are being resurrected through chatbots or grief bots, as they're called, holographic projections and other audiovisual recreations. We've seen it in recent years with people building grief bots to mimic their deceased loved ones using their voice and data. But Tamara says this trend has actually been going on for some time. And there were a number of chatbot kind of simulation of the dead companies that were around earlier in my research, like 2008, 2010. And most of those companies don't exist anymore. So again, we have the problem of uh, even if you were to construct a perfect simulation of a dead loved one using the highest tech, you know, using the best, most powerful generative AI, it would still have to be maintained. And so it still would have to be updated. Right. Um, another issue that definitely troubles me is the matter of consent. So people being, you know, quote unquote, resurrected when they themselves would not have wanted that. And so the question over who should have the right to bring the dead back? And should it be Microsoft? I would say no. (laughs) Should it be a spouse or a sibling or a parent? I mean, who actually has the ultimate control over the personality rights of a, of a person? And, you know, it it can be a legal question for sure, but I, I think it also is ultimately a, an ethical question that kind of goes beyond the legal realm. Sure. Do you think we might need to have to think about something like a don't bought me clause in our wills? Yeah, definitely. And that, you know, that is something that other sort of digital death colleagues of mine have certainly raised, particularly people who are uh, estate planning attorneys. And this is a growing issue. Um, And it's always been the case for celebrities that there have been people who would try to revive them for commercial gain. And we saw that, you know, but of course, you know, uh, Marilyn Monroe or Tupac. Mm -hmm. But it is now the case that it could happen with pretty much anyone because of the way that technology works and the amount of data that we have kind of attached to every individual. Um, And so this problem of reviving the dead and the idea that maybe your employer would want to do it (laughs) or, you know, and this is something obviously that came up with both WGA and SAG-AFTRA in terms of thinking about the the role of AI in making labor conditions worse in part by basically using AI to generate actors instead of paying living ones. And that that is something that I think more people definitely need to think about. Yeah. The idea of automation being a solution to uh, paying for labor and also, I guess, having to acknowledge mortality. So, yeah, your book sheds light on this sort of problem of techno solutionism, this kind of Silicon Valley mentality that technology can help us even overcome our own mortality in some way. I know you talked with some transhumanists about their outlook. What did you come away from those conversations with? Yeah, you know, transhumanism is a very interesting set of beliefs and ideologies because, you know, it is such a large uh, and very diverse group of people. And so you do have people who are really focused on the idea of mind uploading, um, putting their consciousness into a computer of some kind. But then you do have people who are thinking more about uh, transhumanism as a version of the afterlife in a more sort of uh, religious sense than, than not. And what's also interesting about transhumanism is that while it appears to be kind of a, a fringe 
belief system, it actually is very well integrated into the tech industry. Are there ways in which digital death practices reproduce existing structural inequalities? In anthropology, in the field of anthropology, paying attention to mortuary rituals and burial practices is a way of really understanding the values of a society. And of course, there are always going to be people who have giant grave markers and uh, as a display of wealth and people who are thrown into a pauper's grave in an unmarked way. And so the same, the same kinds of inequalities that happen in burial also do happen in a digital sense. And so, you know, whose deaths are considered grievable, who attracts attention in a lot of lights or retweets or, you know, whose deaths are circulated mm-hmm. and celebrated as being a real loss and whose are kind of ignored. And I've written about that particularly within the context of things like crowdfunded funerals where you have, you know, some cases that are, you know, attracting a lot of attention in the media and end up going viral and people are just flooded with money to bury the dead. And then there are other campaigns largely for the elderly, for people of color, for disabled people that don't attract attention yeah. and do not meet their goals. And so you it's just a very stark uh, contrast And, you know, generally speaking, when we look at who actually has control over the corporate platforms that many people are using to memorialize the dead, to kind of think about their own legacies, they really, as individuals, have very little control. So there's also a direct relationship, I think, to the massive amount of wealth inequality and the fact that tech billionaires are (laughs) among like the eight uh, wealthiest people on the planet. And so thinking about the way that people can imagine their legacies is very much limited by the imaginations of tech billionaires. So, Yeah. Thanks so much for your insights on this. Yeah, thank you. Tamara Nice is the author of Death Glitch, How Techno-Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond. Despite our increasingly digital lives, in a lot of respects, death is still very much an analog experience. And around the world, cultures have come up with different practices to help them deal with the messiness of it all. Uh, My name is Katarina Blum. I'm a psychologist and I live in Sweden. I'm very focused on the psychology of happiness, but also death. And I am currently the host of uh, the new show on Peacock called The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. So what exactly is Swedish death cleaning? It's basically the practice that you should take care of your stuff before you die so you don't just dump it onto your relatives and friends because they will be grieving you once you're dead and you shouldn't just put that burden on them. So it's really about taking a lot of responsibility of your own life. And that's the basis of The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning, which is an adaptation of a 2017 book of the same title by Margarita Magnusson. And it brings a long-practiced tradition to a North American audience. In Sweden, it's really common to do death cleaning. It's really not something that we talk about. It's just something that you do. My mother did death cleaning with her mother. I've done it since I was a kid. I've helped my grandmother sort her belongings and collect the stories from her items so they won't be lost once she's gone. So it's really about paying tribute to your own family history, but through going through your items. 
Katerina says that practices that make us take stock of the belongings we've collected over a lifetime can also help us broach difficult conversations and maybe even come to terms with our mortality. I think death is something that we avoid as a collective and doing death cleaning every now and then, it's non-dramatic way to approach death and approach our own mortality. I think we should be in contact with death much more than we normally are because without death, life would lack value. And this is a way to remind yourself about what's really important in your life and what items sparks that kind of sense that you feel connected to important people in your life or important memories, um, maybe uh, the period when you had kids or when you went to college or started your first job. It seems like a lot of people are actually longing to have this conversation around death and uh, letting go of items. I think we live in a society where we are reinforced to just accumulate social status, money, uh, things, but no one really teaches us how to let go of those things and how should we choose what to keep and, and uh, what to get rid of. And in the end, we can just feel overwhelmed by the amount of things. A common problem is you don't know where to start. You just feel the need to lighten your load, to lighten the burden of all your things. And um, I think basically it's just thinking of leaving this earth and not having uh, loose ends uh, left behind. You don't want to leave with having ongoing conflicts with people. Uh, the same with items, like uh, you want to put things in order, so to say. And I would say in the show, the people we helped there, everyone said that in the end of the process, like, wow, I feel like I can finally breathe again. We live in our homes and it's such a physical experience to have done a death cleaning where you can walk through your rooms and finally see and connect with all the important things. And the only drawback I could think about could maybe be that when someone just leaves in a hurry and they haven't organized their things, uh, the people that are left behind can have this chance of rediscovering them and getting to know them in a, another way. Uh, maybe a way that they uh, couldn't once this person was alive. But I also feel like it's kind of respectful to the person that they can decide who they are and what they want to share and uh, what things that they don't want to share. But I would also say that most often the problem is not that a person was too tidy when they went. It's way more often that the people that are left behind feel overwhelmed often so much that we don't have the energy to go through letters and photographs and diaries. We just kind of, Ugh, I don't know what to do with all of this. So you just kind of don't go through it at all or just dump everything to the Salvation Army or something. I think it's hard for people to get rid of some things because of the emotional bond they have with this item. Every item is a doorway to a person, a memory, uh, a sentiment. And uh, sometimes we feel that we're not done with this 
relationship or this person uh, or this memory. We want to keep it. And of course you can. Swedish death cleaning is not about minimalizing everything. You can be a maximalist, but you need to know why you have saved all these things. Uh, So you feel that all the things that are here have a purpose for me. And then we also have a lot of possibilities in how the digital age can help us do death cleaning also in our real home. For example, in the show, we help Godfrey who lost both of his parents and he told us that he had so many voice messages from his mother that he saved, but he doesn't really have them in a handy way and he's scared that he will accidentally delete them or lose them. So we just uploaded them to a cloud and also put them on a little memory stick so he easily can connect with his mom in that way whenever he wants. I think it's really interesting the the intersection between the digital world and our analog world. Katarina Bloom is a psychologist and the co-host of the TV show The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. While there are certainly benefits to decluttering our lives before we die, sometimes there isn't a chance to do that. Leaving behind a home full of things that, pieced together, tell a story of who we were. Evie King is a council funeral officer in England, and that entails... Oh, um, an entire gamut of things... Evie King is a pen name. She says she uses it to respect the people connected to her cases who are still living. You see, Evie's in an interesting position. She arranges and attends the funerals of people who either can't afford to pay for a private funeral or don't have any loved ones present in their lives. You get the referral and then you have to attend the property to do a search for any evidence of next of kin. So we're looking at address books and luckily enough, if there's an unlocked phone or an unlocked laptop, in addition to doing those searches to find out the basics of you know who they have in their life to get someone to either take the funeral from us or attend the funeral with us, we're also there looking for contents for the eulogy so we're looking at the book you're reading your hobbies your cd collection in a digital world i can't see the spotify is getting harder and harder a cd rack isn't so common anymore in her book ashes to admin tales from the caseload of a council funeral officer she tells the story of the people she's helped bury over the years we're also doing very administrative work of gathering up paperwork so that we can freeze bank accounts, inform energy suppliers and phone suppliers and so forth. And the very basic public health work of disposing of the last meal on the sideboard and taking the bin out and any perishable food, anything that could become a public health problem. So it runs the gamut from cleaning lady to detective. (laughs) And then close down and freeze all those accounts. If the phone's unlocked, phone random numbers and say, who's this please? And who are you to this person? Which is a strange phone call for both of us. It helps if you acknowledge this is a weird phone call from the off. Sort of eases us both into our strange relationship that we're suddenly flung into. And then ultimately booking the funeral, registering the death and attending that funeral with whoever I've found along the way, which could be anything from long lost family to their friend who they always sat next to at the betting shop every day, you know, or someone from the pub. There's loads of people out there who know us. 
Evie's job is under Section 46 of the UK government's Public Health Control of Disease Act 1984. It's a basic directive that orders the local authority to bury or cremate the body of anyone who dies or is found dead in a given council district, where no suitable arrangements for the disposal of the body have otherwise been made. But she often goes beyond what her role demands. We luckily have it in our procedure that we do a service. So that frees me up to go the extra mile and not just sort of stop when I hit the wall of it doesn't look like there's anyone here. You know, there's no one in this home beyond them. Clearly, there's one bedroom, one, you know, of everything, one toothbrush. But Mm. I sort of end up getting it's a mixture of nosy and maybe buying karma and what I'd want for myself or what I'd want for others I care about. I start going on Facebook groups for the local area and searching the person's name. The last time I did that, I found a post from a daughter asking if anyone had heard from her father and you know, she hadn't seen for 10 years. And sadly, I, I knew where he was, which was a good and a bad thing, you know, in order to tell her that yeah. I had to tell her he died. But I just keep digging. I keep looking and Googling and asking around until I've found anyone, whether it's their friends or usually if they've got a hobby you you go around the local groups, you'll find people who knew them through that. And they will then come along and raise it to something quite special, actually. A lot lot of people, when I tell them about my job, they pull the pity face and go, oh, oh dear. (laughs) And it's sort of part of the reason I wrote the book was to sort of stop people pulling the pity face about people like that, because we're all one or two bereavements and sets of circumstances away from being that person. And so, yes, it's just pulling on the thread of stories. Everyone's got a story and it's just wanting to get to that story one last time and say it in a room, sum it up because everyone's done something. And even Mm -hmm. if it's nothing spectacular, each life lived is is just remarkable and should be remarked upon. So yeah, it's just wanting that person to have what everyone else is conventionally getting but by bent of luck, by bent of having someone there to do it for them. So tell me more about the sort of detective aspect of this work. What kind of materials do you look for in the wake of a person's death and, and where do you look? Well, I usually have these go-to areas of houses. For some reason, the kitchen's very good for people storing paperwork and things that they would need for identification, like their passport and things like that, and their car details. There's always a cupboard or a drawer in a kitchen that will give up quite a lot of stuff, (laughs) depending on how organized the person is, of course. I went into one house once that was really very disorganized, almost hoarding. And even that house had this island of a table in the lounge, which had their paperwork and things on it. So you just sort of start to zero in on where things are kept that are of importance or might be useful. Can you find clues from things like photos? Yes, that's the other thing. There will sometimes be a pile of of mail and you'll look and find a Christmas card and someone will have written their email address in there or their phone number. And if you turn a photo around like I did once, it was very on the nose. They'd written my first love and the person's name. So immediately, oh, Oh, thank you. (laughs) I thought I was in a video game then. It was a bit too easy. It was a clue. But yeah, there there will be lots of different things where as you walk around, 
pieces will fall into place. And someone left their CV out once, which was very helpful. So I had an entire lifetime of, and a personal statement. Also, a will is very useful because that's got literally got their wishes in it. But that's a rare thing to come by because people just don't think to make them. And um, that's the other thing I wanted to put across in my book, please make a will, because the whole thing that hangs over me during the duration of the case, alongside finding out who they were and finding people to come to their funeral, is am I doing the right thing in you know the cremation or burial? And I had someone once whose only wish, apparently, according to his daughter, was please don't let them burn me. And I found that out quite late in the day. So that kind of thing really makes me anxious. And I'd love to see that written down more often, you know, what the wishes are. Yeah. Yeah. So how does the growing digital dimension of our lives complicate things for someone who does what you do or or anyone really in the wake of a loved one's death? It's sort of as helpful as it is unhelpful because, like I say, I've got access to these Facebook groups. I can even find the people themselves on Facebook or Twitter and see what they've been up to and saying and doing and who they're friends with. But there's the problem of, like I say, locked laptops, locked mobiles in Time's gone, people will have had an address book with the addresses and phone numbers of people written down. And I do still sometimes find those, but in the cases where people are quite old, as people get younger, when I'm doing the house search, there isn't much by way of addresses, phone numbers, contacts, ways of contacting people or who they know. That's the other thing that. I do for myself. I've got a book in my kitchen with notes in it. Basically, everything I've learned that I need to know that someone might need to know about me. And it starts with, if you're reading this, I am dead. And I've got right down to like my friend's phone number because the coroner won't tell them. So I've got my friends and people who aren't completely obvious. And so it's that side of things that's difficult now that things are more digital. It's getting to those phone numbers. It's getting to those contacts lists. But then once you do figure out who they are online, if you can, it becomes a lot easier. It's just, it's on the fence 50-50, helpful and unhelpful. If I can't crack through that, I'm stuck. Yeah, you mean easier because you can do things like find their social media contacts or say, does anyone know this person or that kind of thing? But yeah, and you get stuck in message request box, don't you? So you don't necessarily get seen. So I can sometimes have found someone and have messaged them and they'll never see it because it's in their spam or it's in their requests and they don't check their request. So sometimes you come that close. You're like, I found them. Brilliant. I'll message them. And they don't see it. So, yeah, it's it's really frustratingly right there, but intangible as well, the digital stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So in your book, you describe what you call a death positive minimalism in residential care homes. So instead of allowing this kind of lifetime collection of trinkets and, and memories, these homes kind of provide, like, as I understand it, a sort of a cheat sheet for residents. So as someone who has to sift through someone's remnants after they die, what do you make of this practice? Oh, well, the um, care home thing, it's kind of a default because you're moving someone from their entire life, maybe in a big house, into one room. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea what happens before I get there. but they end up with very little possessions. And it's quite strange because that person's clearly had a a house I would have been able to search in another life, but now they've just got a couple of carrier bags of very rudimentary items like snacks and puzzle books and clothes. The cheat sheet helps though. This is something that 
some homes do when they bring someone in and they will say, right, who are you basically? You know, what's your favorite this? What's your favorite that? Who's important to you? So it's kind of useful to a mm-hmm. point, but it's not the deep stuff you'll get from someone who knew them, knew them. So we're, when we go to a care home, we're looking for who visits them and then we can actually get to the proper like story of them. With the ones that we don't have anyone visiting, that's when I'll go off and try and see if I can find, like in one case, a guy who'd never had any visitors in his whole time there. He did have a family and I did find them on Twitter uh, and Facebook Mm. and they were able to fill in so much more. The cheat sheet had really only said he liked motorbikes and Queen. So suddenly you've got this sort of very bland information and then someone comes along and gives you a three-dimensional person. When I was talking about piecing things together, you, you grow this gradual picture that starts with something on a sideboard or something on that cheat sheet, and then it sort of rolls and gets bigger and bigger as, as you get closer to people who knew them. Yeah. So re- reflecting on what you've seen in your years of work, what do you recommend people do to to prepare for their own end of life? Well, my first thing is make your wishes clear. I had someone tweet me and think they'd gotcha'd me because they said, well, what if I've got no wishes? And I replied, those are wishes. <laughs> and they're pretty strong wishes, actually, because they will right. s- those wishes will save your family a lot of money. And maybe you could turn those wishes into a positive and donate your body to medical science or something like that, or release your family from a lot of debt and just say, do a direct cremation uh, for a thousand pounds rather than a four thousand pound full funeral. Yeah. And in terms of preparation, I've found that having that will, having had thought about how you want to be dealt with after you die, having made plans, having written the book saying, this is where my car is parked because I've walked around so many streets doing the remote locking key to see if the lights came on in cars from people who park them on the road and I don't know what their car is. (laughs) I've got this thing where I, I say where everything you need to know about me is So here's my car keys. Here's where my car is. Here's my paperwork and a list of everything, like where I bank, where, who does my phone, who does my gas. You don't need to um, leave passwords or anything to compromise yourself now. When I inform companies, they only want name, address and date of birth. So for the purposes of informing, people who are left behind will only need that information where it is, and then they can phone and go through that process. And once they've got a death certificate, they can then close it. And ultimately, just the book was sort of unintentionally, but it seems to have done this, aimed at kind of getting people relaxed about death by making my people appear less tragic, because everyone seems to view them through this lens of tragedy. It kind of was aimed at helping us with our own 3am fears about how we die and how we end and sort of letting go of that and realizing that even if it comes to the, in air quotes, worst, you will be dealt with and it will be okay. So stop lying awake at four in the morning worrying about how many people are going to be around your deathbed or at your funeral because a funeral really isn't a scorecard and it's yeah. all just circumstantial and luck of the draw and all these worries about doing things in the here and now that sound good in a eulogy or ensure that you're not alone at the end when they might not be what you want to do. You know, Live your life, relax, get prepared for death and then forget about it. Just leave it on the back burner. 
Good advice. Thank you so much, Evie. Thank you. Evie King is the author of Ashes to Admin, Tales from the Caseload of a Council Funeral Officer. You've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samarit Johannes, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by John Troyer, Tamara Nice, Katerina Bloom, and Evie King. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.